Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Well, you know what I've seen is we've gotten some funding for victim witness coordinators to work with these victims, and uh, I think that's really important because a lot of times I think they get dissuaded from pursuing cases or they get frustrated because they feel like nobody cares. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with my co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, so, Yvonne, uh, we're in the middle of stock market crash, coronavirus. Uh, you, both you and our guests are in Tennessee right now where they're getting hit with bad weather. Uh, South by Southwest has been canceled. I mean, so how are you doing? I'm good. I'm trying to keep my um, my inclination towards doomsday prepping under control. As we talked about, I have decided to um, have like one day's worth of food in my apartment, which is one day more <laughs> than I usually have. But I, right. feel like I also like reverted to my, as you know, I came home to visit my parents this weekend. So I feel like when in trouble, I just like ran to my parents like a <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> like a <kid. laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that's the first place you'll be going if, uh, I guess, if we shut everything down. Totally, 100%. <laughs> well, um, well, hopefully we'll make it through all this and people will actually get to listen to our podcast. Um, <laughs> I want to go ahead and introduce our guest today. We have a, a great guest from Knoxville, Tennessee, and, um, and his name is T. Scott Jones. Uh, T. Scott is a partner at Banks & Jones in Knoxville. Uh, and you can look him up at banksjones.com. Uh, T. Scott, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I appreciate it. Glad you guys are. Well, yeah. And, and uh, as I told everybody, you're in Knoxville. So hopefully you guys are dealing okay with the weather over there. I know you, uh, last week you guys guys were getting hit pretty hard. I tell you, man, our heart goes out to the uh, folks there in Middle Tennessee and up on the plateau. We really got abused by uh, Mother Nature, but uh, we're, uh, you know, a resilient state. So we're on the road to recovery. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, well, T. Scott, let me tell all of our listeners a little bit about you and your background, and uh, and then we'll start talking about this case that you, uh, you know, which is uh, a very troubling case for especially uh, have two daughters. So anybody who has daughters, I think, uh, would especially be troubled by it. But it's a just a, 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 a tragic case. Uh, but you are a partner at Banks and Jones. You're an AV rated lawyer. Uh, you have been uh, rated as ten, one of ten, Tennessee's 10 best lawyers by the American Institute of Criminal Law Attorneys. And you've been na- named one of Tennessee's top 100 lawyers by the American Society of Legal, Legal Advocates. Uh, you regularly lecture and uh, teach um, about trial strategy and tactics. You're a member of the um, of ABOTA, which is a uh, fantastic group and the elite lawyers of America, um, and have uh, tried a number of cases that have resulted in uh, significant verdicts for your clients. Uh, but what I want to do is I looked you up on, your, on your, um, your website, and I saw that on, in your pastime, you are a skydiver, a scuba diver, and that you like to race motorcycles uh, sometimes uh, 200 miles per hour plus. Plus, and then this is what I thought was really cool, Yvonne, is he is a Jack Daniels, Tennessee Squire, and oh, yeah. then also a, a Kentucky Colonel. Whoa. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what it means to be a Jack Daniels, Tennessee Squire, but I mean, that sounds pretty cool. Well, it means I've had a drink or two of brown liquor. And, <laughs> I, uh, you know, the good folks in Lynchburg and I are just kind of like, uh, you know, uh, hand in glove. 
Right, right. <laughs> well, that, that is a uh, that is fantastic. Well, and tell us about these uh, these this motorcycle racing that you like to do. Two hundred miles per hour. That sounds uh, uh, that sounds intense. Let's just say that. Well, you know, it's kind of cool. You know that you know you mentioned that because. I, uh, years ago got approached by a buddy of mine and he's like, you know, have you ever thought about racing motorcycles? And I was, I'd always ridden. I was like, no, no, not really. And he's like, why don't you come out to the track? And so long story short, I ended up racing his bike faster than he had ever run it. And (laughs) I got into it pretty heavy there for about a 10 or 12 year stretch, went all over the country, actually flew my bike to Australia. And during that, I ended up setting five world records uh, on uh, aspirated motorcycles. Uh, 214 mile an hour was my best. And, uh, you know, it's it's not the speed that gets you. It's the unexpected stop. But uh, (laughs) right. I did manage to uh, survive that. So I'm very proud (laughs) about it. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about getting your face on the cover of the Rolling Stone, I managed my uh, my ugly mug on the corner or on the cover of the Bonneville Racing News, which is the <laughs> fan speed racing Bible, if you will. So that was kind of, I guess that was the pinnacle of my career. I feel like we're, uh, it's like a commercial for like, um, what is it? Heineken or whatever. Uh, like like the, 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 cool, the world's the most interesting man. man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Pretty awesome. Yeah, it was kind of, um, kind of neat. You know, I mean, you know, when you're in the courtroom all the time and you guys are aware of that, you know, it's kind of that sort of intense um, feeling. And really, the, the only time I ever really get that is when I'm in front of a jury or when I'm racing that bike. I mean, you know, when you're 200 plus miles an hour, there's just no room for mistake. And so oh, uh, yeah. it was just the exhilaration. I mean, coming off that bike, I mean, you know, it was it was awesome. I mean, that sounds five world records. I mean, that is uh, that's fantastic. So uh, congratulations on that. And that's not even talking about your uh, your um, uh, what you do for a profession and your uh, how, how great you are in the courtroom. Well, I appreciate that. I always say a blind squirrel finds a few nuts. So uh, <laughs> I, do the best I can, you know, I just tee them up and swing the bat as hard as I can. That's right. That's right. What was, what was the other one you said before we started recording about how busy you are? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is a one-armed paper hanger. Oh, yeah. that's, a, that's a new one to me. Oh, yeah. I like it. Well, that's a, those Southern colloquialisms, you know. That's right. We always play that in front of our juries pretty hard. <laughs> Well, uh, well, T. Scott, let's talk a little bit about this case that uh, that you tried in Greene County, Tennessee. Uh, the name of the case was Nicole Collins versus Harold Lindbergh. And it's um, Nicole in all, April of 2009 was a 16-year-old. And she had been on a website called tag.com, which I guess is for teenagers. Uh, I had never heard of it. And then a uh, man named Harold Lindbergh had... Uh, contacted her and sort of uh, propositioned her uh, and he represented himself as being an 18 year old uh, and used a a name of I think Romeo 1953 or something like that and um, and talked her into uh, letting him pick her up and then bring her to his house turns out he was a 58 year old businessman uh, who was a funeral home director and then uh, from what I can tell from the facts, uh, just uh, uh, raped her uh, orally, vaginally, anally. Um, it, two days later, she ends up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning uh, and, um, and vaginal tears. And um, 
and uh, you know, complaining that she had just been raped. Um, and then, so you uh, took this case uh, against him, and, and I, I should say, and we'll talk about this more during the podcast, that the uh, criminal system really didn't prosecute him the way that uh, he, he should have been. Um, and, um, but you uh, brought a case and uh, in 2014 got a verdict, a total verdict of uh, $525,752.50. It was $300,000 in compensatory damages and $225,000 in punitive damages. Um, and um, uh, just great work. But, but T. Scott, talk a little bit. I know you do both uh, criminal uh, defense and some criminal work and do some um, uh, do civil work. So from a, from the criminal standpoint, talk about what happened with uh, the, Mr. Lindbergh, uh, the person who had perpetrated this crime and then really didn't get uh, punished by the criminal system. Well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's what rang so loudly with me, you know, when the criminal system had failed this young lady. Uh, you know, Mr. Lindbergh was a uh, person of uh, pretty uh, serious prominence up in the uh, area that uh, he was in up in Greene County, Tennessee, and, uh, you know, of considerable affluence. And I don't know if he was just considered to be above the law or what, but the sitting attorney general at the time, he's since been supplanted, uh, basically made him a offer to allow him to enter what would be considered to be a nolo contendere submission, so it couldn't be used against him in a civil case, and allowed him effectively, because he had a clean criminal record, a diversion, which means that they greatly reduced the charges from statutory rape and physical rape to a diversionary charge where that if he would keep his nose clean for a period of time, he had an opportunity to walk away from it unscathed. And, um, you know, I, I guess being a father myself and, you know, having a beautiful daughter and, you know, I've got a son, it just ran all over me. And I was like, you know, somebody's going to bring you to answer for this and uh, talk to my law partner about it. And I'm like, you know, a little bit uh, different than what we do. You know, we do a lot of catastrophic injuries and things of this nature. And, you know, I, I defend criminals, you know, uh, and folks that are charged with crimes. So I thought, well, it'd be kind of interesting to take it from the victim's perspective. And that's that's exactly what we did. Um, I know that you we shared with you some of the media accounts uh, of the case. And I, I made the determination that Harold Lindbergh, you weren't going to get away with this. I mean, you know, you, you go picking up a 15, 16 year old girl driving all the way from Knox or from your town to Knoxville, Tennessee. It's more than an hour. It wasn't like, you know, he just happened to run into this girl. And, you know, I guess the most telling thing, obviously, she had grown up a little bit by the time we actually went to trial and, uh, you know, it matured. But the reality of it is, I mean, you could look at this girl and she looked like a child. There was none of this, oh, I thought she was older, whoops, I didn't know. And then, you know, the point, you know, uh, that Yvonne makes relative to the catfishing that this guy did. I mean, you know, that's the uh, old thing where, you know, act like, I guess, you're younger than what you are. And he says he's 18 and, you know, maybe she's young and foolish and shouldn't have went with him. But, you know, that's why we have statutory rape. And that's why we don't let predators like Harold Lindbergh uh, walk the streets. So... That's kind of where I was at on it. And one of the, one of the things I wasn't sure about, but I found, um, you know, pretty shocking. I thought I had read, I can't remember if it was in the press coverage that maybe a lot more of the focus or his no low plea went to the statutory rape charge and really kind of diminished or downplayed 
what at least seeing what happened to me was kind of the more horrific element of it, which was actually the, you know, the physical rape. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things. I mean, we, we talk about things happening and when we describe them from a personal injury standpoint, obviously we want to make them poignant and where a jury can wrap their mind around it. But we had a, a number of photographs and we had the surgical records, but literally, I mean, and I'm not trying to be too graphic. I mean, that's just the only way you can describe it. I mean, he fissured this girl. I mean, he absolutely ripped her anus up. He ripped her vagina. There's no way that you can do that and not know that you're hurting someone. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was horrific what this guy engaged in. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, the whole aspect, I mean, I, it's a little shocking that they would let him out on this diversionary program because he had, you know, intentionally set up this false identity on this website that's set up for younger people, definitely not somebody who's 58 years old. And um, and then I, I thought I read somewhere that even after he entered into the diversionary program, you had found that he uh, had uh, made up four other fake identities after uh, this event. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, obviously when we investigate these cases, we keep looking and it's one of those things when you uh, look and the guy's still at it, you're like, dude, you seriously didn't learn your lesson. I don't know how they let you skate on this, but you know, it's going to be salient in front of the jury because you have no business being out here. I mean, he preyed on this girl and, you know, I, I dare say uh, that there's no rehabilitating Harold Lindbergh. I mean, he's going to prey on women till the day he dies. So when this family came to you, did they, because I don't think, I think a lot of people don't, don't know what their options would be under these circumstances other than the criminal system. Did they have an idea of of what they, what you could help them with or what their options were? Well, I mean, they just knew that the girl had been devastated. And, you know, when it first came in, you know, you're looking at it. And I guess you look at cases, you know, twofold. A, one, was there a tort? Was there something that I can do to recover? And B, you know, financially, is it a viable case that I can pursue? And so, obviously, there was a tort involved with regards to this girl's rape. But then, you know, is it going to be viable financially? And then I think when you weigh these cases out, sometimes you just kind of have to weigh it out. and You have to, uh, you know, to coin the phrase, do the right thing. And, you know, once I saw this guy duck out of the criminal case, I was like, no, you know, you may whip me in court, but I, I'm going I'm to make sure you knew you were in a fight. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so what I saw, uh, it looked like that it took about four years or maybe even five years to get it to trial. And um, what was the, uh, was that because of the criminal prosecution that was going on, or at least the criminal investigation and the, the diversionary program that that, um, that strung it out like that? Yeah, there's a mechanism under Tennessee law that where there is a contemporaneous criminal process that they can stay the civil process pending the resolution of the criminal case. And so uh, I, I'll never forget that when I found out what they were doing on the criminal case, I was on my way up to a meeting. I do work with Shriners Crippled Children Hospital, and I was on the way to a Shriners meeting to uh, work with some of our uh, programs for crippled kids. 
And I literally, I pulled the damn car over and I was like, you know, you've got to be shitting me. You have got to be shitting me that you're going to let somebody loose like this. And I immediately called the attorney general's office. I'm like, you know, what are you guys thinking? I mean, are you reading the same reports I am? And, you know, I got this sort of the perfunctory thing. And I'm like, well, you know what? I called Chris and I'm like, I'm not giving up. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go after him hard. And that's when we just redoubled our efforts to uh, pop him civilly. I mean, thank God. It's one of those things that you um, that you would see like a later sort of like documentary or true crime thing about and, and be horrified that something like this could happen. I mean, it, it sounds to me like something that, you know, could happen 20 years ago in terms of rape crimes not being prosecuted and 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 charged and punished appropriately. The idea that this happened not that long ago on, with these facts is just horrifying. Well, and I think part of it was, I think the state to a certain extent was dismissive. This young lady came from a very socioeconomically challenged family. Uh, you know, and, and I don't mean it in a condescending or a mean way. It's just a reality. She was of a diminished IQ. I mean, she did not meet, meet the criteria uh, of uh, what you would consider to be uh, mentally challenged, but she certainly uh, was having some uh, developmental problems and some intelligence problems and, uh, you know, maybe lacked a little bit of the guidance. And I think, you know, sometimes we as a society and maybe in our roles as prosecutors, you know, when we're in that role, we kind of, we kind of overlook some of the victims. And I mean, you know, if you're not going to be the voice for the victim, I mean, who will be? Right. Well, you, in this case. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, we were, we were screaming, uh, we were screaming uh, loud and clear and uh, you know, I, I will, I will recount uh, a, a little thing at the end of it after we, uh, we hit him pretty hard. I ended up running into Harold Lindbergh publicly. So uh, it was, uh, it was, it was quite fun. And I expressed yeah. my, my sentiments with regards to Mr. Uh, Lindbergh's uh, value in breathing the same air that I breathe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. 
And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta com legal technology services uh, give them a try yeah I, I wanted to ask you because um, so I, I noticed that when he went to trial I mean obviously this is somebody who is, was a fairly prominent businessman owned a business uh, owned a funeral home and we, you know at least for the criminal part of it ha- was represented by counsel and then from what I understand when he when the civil case was filed was represented by counsel but then when the when the case actually went to trial, uh, decided to represent himself. And I've seen that done before when someone sort of wants to, you know, play up the uh, factor that maybe they don't have as much uh, financial means or that they're somehow unsophisticated. Did you see, uh, did you see a type of strategy that Mr. Lindbergh was trying to pull there by representing himself? Yeah. I mean, the representation of himself came up just a few days before trial. I mean, and he is an intelligent man. I'm not saying that he uh, is a good man, but he's no dummy. And uh, he had actually prepared extensively for it. And uh, he had uh, counsel up there that he was utilizing throughout the trial. And then we get basically up to trial and I don't know if it was the thought of engendering sympathy. I don't know if it was a financial decision or uh, what, but, you know, he had indicated that basically, uh, you know, he was going to go it alone. And, you know, obviously, you know, as they say, sometimes when you represent yourself, you have a fool for a client. And so we were sort of sitting there kind of, uh, you know, licking our chops because I wanted a shot at Harold Lindbergh. I wanted to bring Harold Lindbergh to his knees. Right. Well, and then how did that um, how, how did that work as far as, uh, you know, when you're doing sort of the standard stuff you do and like picking a jury and things like that? I mean, I guess he got up there and asked questions and, and, uh, and tried to do jury selection. Uh, he did. I mean, he uh, he, you know, capably engaged in more dire things of that nature. Uh, and, uh, you know, we went through the, the, the whole if you will, machinations of a jury trial, just like we would have gone through in any other one. And that was why, you know, it it was so different because you didn't necessarily have defense counsel at the trial stage, but, uh, you know, he, he engaged in cross-examination, everything else. And I mean, uh, what I would have considered to be viable cross-examination, he didn't go up and just ask two or three questions. I mean, he very capably participated in the trial. Well, and that makes me think of, I don't want to get to skip around too much, but I mean, that immediately makes me think of, I guess, two questions, which is, um, you know, number one, what did you, what did you do with this young woman in terms of, of putting up your case? And then I guess, number two, did he cross-examine her? He absolutely did. And, uh, you know, it was one of the things that, you know, I prepared the young lady. I talked to her, you know, extensively with regards to what her testimony. And I said, you know, the easiest thing that is going to be for you is, Nicole, you just simply have to tell the truth. She's a very compelling young lady. And she told the uh, truth. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot Harold could do. I mean, Harold tried to ask her uh, some questions 
But, you know, when you start dealing with statutory rape, it's, it is the rape by nature of the majority. You know, the fact that she is not an adult, it doesn't matter whether or not she consensually laid down to begin with. She can't, by her definition, consent to it. And um, she did she did a really good job. I mean, she looked at him in the eyes and she's like, you know, you took something away from me I'll never get. And, you know, moments like that in front of the jury, I mean, that's what sort of sealed Harold's fate. Well, how brave of her. I mean, I just cannot get over the idea that, I mean, number one, that in my opinion, the criminal system really fails her. And luckily she goes to a lawyer to pursue civil justice. And then, but then you still, that's, I can't imagine what that's like to have to, you know, be in front of a jury and and have this stuff sort of played out for them. But then on top of that, to be um, cross-examined by the man who raped you, I, I, cannot get my head around how difficult that must have been for her and how what the bravery that that must have taken for her to do that. Well, it, it really was. I mean, she she really just stepped up to the plate, did what she needed to do. You know, of course, by that time, you know, she was, what, 21 years of age by the time the case goes to trial. And, you know, there's a lot of maturation occurs in both men and women between the age of 16 and 21. So she was she was quite capable of handling herself. And, uh, you know, she has continued to work with victims of crime and uh, to continue to uh, try to reach out and minister to other folks that have been involved in similar type situations. I mean, it it was just um, it it was a joy to represent her. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that at least somebody stood up for her and got her justice. Um, So from the at least the criminal charge that he ended up uh, um, getting the diversionary program related to was ag- aggravated statutory rape, if I understand correctly, and that, and that that's sexual relations with somebody between the age of 13 to 18 with somebody who's more than 10 years older than them. That's correct. Uh, which seems like a pretty broad, I mean, it, it seems like there still could be a lot of abuse uh, within that uh, definition. But um, but I guess what I'm wondering is, sound like the way that he was defending this was he wasn't denying that he had had sex with her, wasn't denying that he had given her alcohol, uh, her being 16 years old. Uh, he was just saying that he had consent. Um, so I, I guess I'm wondering, obviously that didn't work, but uh, I, what was, how, did he, how did that go over with the jury? I mean, you could literally just see the looks of disgust on their face. You know, I was looking at sort of my jury composition, and obviously, uh, you know, I had a lot of women on the jury, and then I had some older men that, you know, obviously would have had daughters. And, I mean, they they literally looked at Harold Lindbergh after basically opening statement is something that they had scraped better off the bottom of their shoes. I mean, he he – basically sealed his own fate instead of accepting what I would consider to be responsibility for it, you know, to pawn off responsibility on this child. It just flew just in the face of reason. It was just absurd. Yeah. I mean, basically he's trying to blame her. Um, you know, and I saw somewhere that one of the reasons why they decided not to prosecute him fully is because, um, that even though he had represented himself as being 18 on this, uh, this website called tagged, uh, that when he showed up to pick her up, it, she, he wasn't 18. And so, and she still got into the car with him. And so the, I guess the prosecutor decided that that was going to be, a. a, a difficulty for their case and so decided to reduce the charge um was that part of his defense and you know that um you know 
obviously did what, what did he say i guess about the fact that he had misrepresented himself on this website you know, I mean, he indicated that, you know, that that was just acceptable, that the catfishing uh, went on and that, you know, kind of a normal modus operandi for this guy. And, you know, he constantly wanted to blame this victim that, uh, you know, here's this young girl and that, you know, if she hadn't wanted it, she wouldn't have done it. And, you know, one of the most telling things we talk about, the drive uh, to Greenville with him, the difference in the age. And then the first thing this guy does, I mean, he takes her straight to the bedroom. I mean, it's just, um, just absolutely just, just horrid what he did with her. Yes. I mean, so, so what were you able to, um, I'm curious what you were able to use from the criminal case in your, in the civil case, to the extent you even wanted to or needed to, like, did you have um, investigating officers come and testify? Did you, I guess I'm wondering how that, how much of the criminal aspect you used for your civil case? Well, I used some of the investigating officers relative uh, to it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I did is I had already taken his deposition. And so I had kind of uh, trapped him in to a certain extent but I also had quite a bit of um, information that I had gotten through the criminal case, including, you know, his, his four tagged accounts, if you will, that uh, he was, uh, he was utilizing. So uh, to the extent that I did have access to some of the investigatory materials uh, that helped a lot, I will tell you that the actual investigators that were involved in the case, and I'm talking about at the law enforcement uh, level as opposed to the prosecutorial level, they were disgusted with the disposition of the criminal case. Okay. Yeah, there was was a lot of charged and hard feelings relative to the way this uh, criminal case was dealt with. Gotcha. And so were you able to use like the the things that you learned about – the like the tagged accounts, the accounts he was using, were you able to use any of, of the evidence as far as um, things not specific to Nicole that he that he was doing on social media in terms of, you know, posing to be a younger man? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have that. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I mean, this is one of his tagged account lines. Hi, ladies. I'm a very romantic and affectionate man. I love to pamper and treat my girls like a princess. If you've been treated badly by the boys out there, then let me know and contact me, beautiful women. I mean, he's just, he just, a. I mean, and the funny thing was, and I, and it's not funny, ha ha. It's just like, you can't believe it. I mean, He's all over the board on these social media accounts because evidently his age range in women runs from the 15, 16 year old variety on up to the um, uh, older women. I mean, you know, he's, he's got accounts in the 43, 49 year old range, the 18 year old range. I mean, you know, he's what we would call down south as a no color, you know, CQL. Uh, I mean, he just take whatever he can get. I mean, it just just scummy and, and you know and i didn't see this was he married or have children or anything like that he had children and actually had a child at the house at the time all of this oh, occurred man. yeah his 11 year old son was at the home was he a, a witness for any either yeah. side i guess 
he didn't physically see it occurring because the the rape and the all the penetrations occurred in this man's bedroom. Did he know that the, that there was this young girl over there? Uh, you know, that was kind of the, the gist of what we got, but we did not call the 11-year-old. I mean, you know, he already was suffering from the fact of having basically a predator as a father, and yeah. obviously DCS had gotten involved with that. So, you know, I, I wasn't going to put that child through because he didn't see anything, just, uh, you know, untoward harm for just, you know, the benefit of this. Mm. And and then was there evidence that he had done this with other uh girls under the age of 18? He had a reputation in the community for having that proclivity. I mean, as far as we didn't bring forth any evidence of anybody else that he'd raped, but we certainly did, uh, you know, uh, discover that this was an ongoing pattern with this guy, that this guy preyed on young women. Hmm. Oh, it's just, oh, I mean... So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I guess I'm curious what other things you, you did at trial to the extent that you really needed to, because it sounds like after your opening that the jury was pretty, was already with you. But, you know, how did you help them kind of understand, I guess, what had happened and, and paint the picture for them? Well, one of the things that I think is most salient, you know, when you can when you can lay eyes on someone or something, I had Harold Lindbergh stand up and then I had my lady and she is still of slight build and albeit she was older. At the time, she weighed 82 pounds. Oh, wow. And, you know, this man clearly had not shrank or anything of that nature. But, you know, he's a 6'3", 6'4", 225-pound man. 
I mean, we're not talking like there was any confusion that this was a child. And so what I wanted to do was show to that jury that, you know, clearly this is what this guy was dealing with. And then I was trying to get them to relate to when their own children were 82 pounds. You know, when when your daughter's 10, 12, 11 years old, 13 years old, 82 pounds. I mean, 82 pounds is a, you know, a, a slight young lady. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, wow. I didn't realize that's really horrible. Oh, yeah. So I understand this was a, a one-day trial. Who, what other, so it sounded like you had some witnesses from the uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and then maybe some witnesses from from uh, from DFACS or the Department of Family and Children's Services, we'd call them here in Georgia. Um, <clears throat> what uh, what type of, types of testimony were you getting from them and who, who what other witnesses were you using? I, you know, principally what I did was use them with subpoenas do them as far as to bring their stuff more as a records custodian. And then, you know, I had spent quite a bit of time in preparation as far as uh, with his uh, deposition that we had taken. And so that, that was mainly what I did. And then, you know, once I had confidence that he was going to take the stand, I literally just inviscerated him with these documents that I'd gotten and had certified ready to go. And, you know, his cross-examination, you know, there, there are bloodlettings and then there are just beatdowns. Uh, <laughs> so, honest to God, I mean, he, uh, I, I meat grindered him. I mean, I just, no mercy because I knew, you know, sometimes if you're too rough on a defendant, a jury will identify. There ain't no right. way it was going to identify with this predator. Right, right, exactly. How did you, um, and I'm not sure uh, what you're allowed to do in, in Tennessee in terms of damages, but how did, what did you do? Um, what sort of guidance did you give or anything like that to the jury um, for their damages award? Well, one of the things unique in the state of Tennessee is, you know, we have a damage cap. So, you know, non-economic damages were list were capped at 750,000. So you've got, you know, pain and suffering, emotional damages. That's all we can get in the state of Tennessee. Okay. I mean, absent a death and we clearly didn't have a death here. And then the actual physical medical bills, uh, albeit, you know, she had what you would consider to be significant injuries, similar to an episiotomy. I mean, the repair of it is, uh, you know, it's horrific what the female has to go through. But from a financial standpoint, I I couldn't come in there and go, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in real damages. So uh, when we, we looked at what we had as far as damages and everything of that nature, you know, we talk about reptile fearing a case, you know, where what you're doing is you're wanting to say to that jury, by God, it is your turn to say no more. She only had about 16000 in change in damages. And so we didn't have what you would consider to be big uh, monetary uh, actual physical damages that you can lay your finger on. So with regards to the verdict that we got in relation to our damages, we had to be careful too, because if you go too much, our judges will set those aside. I mean, you'll, you'll find yourself in a remediator or a new trial situation. Gotcha. Okay. I, I saw that uh, he was sanctioned for some discovery violations. What was the uh, nature of the sanctions and his, and what had he done? Uh, basically not responding, uh, you know, being uh, evasive with regards to answers, uh, depositions, things of that nature, uh, basically just not complying with the court's orders. 
And, you know, uh, he had T. Woodrow Smith. You know, he had, he, he had counsel at various times doing this. But, you know, he was one of these guys that was just going to operate to the beat of his own drummer. And uh, the judge wasn't going to have any of that. Did So one of the things I was reading about in one of the articles, but I, I wasn't sure timing-wise how this played out, it sounded like some of the work that you were able to do for the family on the civil side ended up um, changing or, or postponing or something on the prosecution side what was happening in the criminal case. Can you talk about that? Uh, you know, I mean, because we were engaged in so much discovery, because I was dealing with all of the agents and everything else, I mean, you know, the reality of it is, is I was glad that they were prosecuting him criminally, but I wasn't going to slow down my case for them. I mean, to the extent at various times that I had to, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was on him uh, just absolutely like a dog on a bone. I Once I'd made a decision that I was going to do it, and then I was going to represent this this girl, you know, that was, I, I was literally going after him like a pit bull. Well, and it looked like one of the things I read was, but but you you correct me if I'm wrong that the that maybe some of the the attention on the case or what you had brought to light had had put some pressure on the DA and they had they had postponed something or or, or gone away from the they, they they did. There was a major article in our, our 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 paper of greatest circulation in East Tennessee is the Knoxville News Sentinel, and uh, Jamie Satterfield, uh, one of our very fine award winning reporters. You know, I contacted her and I said, Jamie, can you believe this? And she was just astounded. I mean, she's a mother herself. And I'm like, look, go look at these facts. I'll show you what I've got. And, you know, I can't believe that basically the attorney general is going to let this one slide through. And so she wrote the article that stayed, if you will, uh, the attorney general for being willing to do it. And then, you know, at a later time, you know, by God, he just did it anyway. Oh, so it still happened anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we, we got part of it, you know, dealt with, but, you know, uh, I, I don't know if the financial forces that uh, were brought to bear were of just such great import that, you know, they, they were going to let this guy off, and that's basically what they did. So, um, I, I, I mean, th- this is obviously uh, a uh, just such an important case and, and a great result in the courtroom. Um, I, I saw that by the time the verdict came in, he had, uh, I think, sold his interest in, in the funeral home and was now and then was acting as a car dealer or something like that. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, was there any appeal, first of all, and then um, how did the collections go? Because I, I know that especially if he starts selling assets, that can be difficult. How did, how did that part of the process go? Well, in the state of Tennessee, unless the asset is the subject of the litigation, you know, it basically creates a situation where a defendant can liquidate assets. There's nothing you could do, and there's certainly no insurance for rape. But what we did is uh, the moment we got the judgment, we immediately began pursuing collection efforts. And, you know, obviously it's an intentional tort. And, uh, you know, I have no intention, nor does my law partner, of allowing this judgment to lapse. We have to uh, renew it every 10 years in order for it to stay a valid judgment. And it's just a petition that we would file up there in the court. But, uh, you know, we, we have recovered some money. I mean, we, we've been able to execute on some assets and things of that nature. Nowhere near the amount of the judgment. But, you know, it's one of those kind of principal cases. We've got it on a tickler system here in the office. And uh, I'm never going to let this guy uh, breathe air again if I get the opportunity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Did he stay local? Did he continue to live where he's he lives? In, in- oh, and I have the most splendid story about that uh, <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm taking depositions on a totally unrelated matter up in Greenville. And I'd spent all day in depositions and I was going to be all day the next day in depositions. So it's about an hour and 45 minutes from my house. And so I'd stayed up there at a uh, famous uh, hotel, the Captain Morgan. And they had a uh, little bar there. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, a man has to have some of that Lynchburg lemonade and a little brown liquor. Right. And so, I, you know, I had me a couple of three finger pours and I'd been slugging it out on this catastrophic shooting case that we, <laughs> that's, that's a, another podcast, which we had a good result. Right. But uh, Harold Lindbergh comes walking into the bar and <laughs> like a five-star dining establishment. And, uh, you know, I don't know what possessed me because ordinarily, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not really shy, but I hollered at him. I said, hey, Harold. And, uh, you know, he threw up <laughs> a hand in waves. And you can see it's been a couple of years since the trial. He's not real sure who I am. And he's got a woman with him. I mean, it's clearly he's on a date. And I said, how you doing? He says, great. How you doing? I said, I'm doing splendid. And then I hollered out across the bar. And I mean, everybody turned and looked and I'm like, have you raped any 16-year-old girls? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I mean, he looks, and I've looked at him, and I said, that's right, big boy. I'm that guy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he wheeled and left the bar shortly thereafter. But, uh, you know, he was a pretty good-sized guy, about 230 pounds. But, you know, I was uh, I'm drinking that liquid courage, you know. And right. <laughs> if I get on a motorcycle 215 miles an hour, I can take down a <laughs> <laughs> that's right leave it to you to be at a hotel called captain morgan oh yeah. i don't know uh yvonne tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are <laughs> oh man we are well we're plaintiff's lawyers we're trial yeah we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens when you get a good outcome for your client either settlement or trial that's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access CasePacer without increasing the price of using it. 
it helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out casepacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's casepacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I wanted to find out, so afterwards, I don't know in Tennessee if you're allowed to talk to the jury, did you get a chance to talk to any of your jurors and and see what they had to say? Uh, You know, I didn't in this case, but I actually ran into a couple later on in another trial that I had. I actually ran into them up there and they kind of related just, they're, they're just disgust with this guy and, you know, that they, they, they wanted to for all intents and purposes, give more, but they knew, you know, I, I knew I had to limit my verdict to something that the judge wouldn't set aside. I mean, you know, you can go get those astronomical numbers, but if they're not reasonable in the state of Tennessee, we're very conservative with regards to our verdicts and you're just asking to have the thing set aside. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people don't know that that number one, when you see a big verdict, that that doesn't mean that that the big verdict doesn't mean somebody's like immediately paid that big verdict money. That <laughs> that 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 can come create its own problems, including as you point out, remitted or a new trial, or not to mention appeals and whether you've got insurance coverage and all and and all of that. So it sounds like you sort of did the smart thing by because it sounds this jury, I'm sure, probably would have done whatever you wanted them to do. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I, you know, I had a good relationship with them. And I mean, you know, it was the reason I wanted to talk about it because this trial was so out of the ordinary. And um, I thought the jury did the right thing. Uh, I don't think counsel would have made a difference one way or the other, because, you know, uh, you can put a bow tie on a pig, but it's still a pig. And I mean, this man is a pig. I mean, that by anybody's definition and you know, I, I don't think I'm defaming a, a found predator, and I'm not really concerned if I am. Uh, <laughs> he's worthless. Right. I mean, truth is a defense. So. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it's hard pressed when a jury finds you did what you did. Uh, you're not going to be able to squirm out of that. Have you, since this, uh, so this was back in 2014 when you got this verdict, since then, uh, have you seen any change in the, uh, in the criminal system that you think is doing a better job or same job or worse job? Well, you know, what I've seen is we've gotten some funding for victim witness coordinators to work with these victims. And uh, I think that's really important because a lot of times I think they get dissuaded from pursuing cases or they get frustrated because they feel like nobody cares. And uh, I, I have seen, you know, really a, a much greater use of victim witness coordinators. And I think that's a great thing in the state of Tennessee. 
Um, all right. Well, this has been, uh, I mean, a great discussion of the case of uh, Nicole Collins versus Harold Lindbergh that resulted in a total verdict of $525,752 in Greene County, Tennessee. Uh, T. Scott, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else you want to make sure our listeners know about this case that we haven't talked about? No, I mean, you know, other than, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, your, your, your counsel pursues everything just as hard and as vigorously as it can without regard sometimes to remuneration that, you know, sometimes you just literally have to do the right thing as an attorney. We all take an oath and you got to, you just got to pony up and step up to the plate for those that can't speak for themselves. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, to, for Nicole to have gone through this and then for the criminal system too, and like I said, in my opinion, have really let her down. Um, you know, as you point out, given the difficulty in, in trying to recover something from the defendant, I mean, she just could have been left without any sort of sense of justice or vindication. So she's very fortunate to find you and that you were willing to take this on for her. Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind words. And, you know, I just uh, feel like every day I'm blessed to have this law license. And so I need to take the steps to honor it and to uh, do the right thing with it. No, absolutely. And we talk about that as, you know, I think most people who do, especially plaintiff's work or, you know, on the side of people who've been injured that, um, you know, while obviously it's it's fun to talk about the the uh, big cases that that get uh, all the press, but I mean, there's a lot of work that that uh, where you're just helping people, and uh, and that really at the heart of it, I think most uh, most plaintiffs lawyers got into this business because they really just like helping people. Well, and I do. I mean, I consider it blessed. I've made a very good living. I've had uh, a lot of success. And, you know, uh, helping the uh, Nicole Collinses of the world and uh, whipping up on the worthless Harold Lindberghs of the world, uh, you know, I'm glad I can add that to my resume. Yeah, absolutely. Well, T. Scott, we've really appreciated your time and, and, uh, and thank you for doing this, uh, this interview with us. Um, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about talking with T. Scott Jones at Banks and Jones in Knoxville, Tennessee, and you can look up T. Scott at banksjones.com. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, 
um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.